and welcome, everyone. I'm David Widmar, joining you again this week for another edition, another installation of our recording where we share two or three ideas that we've gleaned as we've written for the AEI Premium newsletter. This recording sometimes is a podcast or a transcript or a YouTube video, depending on how you've consumed it, is built for AEI Premium subscribers to follow along and kind of a behind the scenes conversation as we write these articles. And so we'll share a few charts and data, but you know, encourage you to read the article if you find the topic really interesting. So I'm going to start this one off by one of my favorite quotes from Yogi Berra, deja vu all over again. And this article came together kind of a combination of a lesson that we talked about in Escaping 1980, the podcast season, and also conversations that I recently heard at, at some industry meetings. And we kicked this off by talking about annual market year average prices. And I'm going to go in a little bit of a time machine here. And let's go back to the 1960s and 1970s. And, you know, corn prices during this period were, you know, consistently between a dollar and a dollar fifty a bushel. They were pretty, I think the average from 1960 to 1971 was $1.13 per bushel. It ranged from as low as a dollar to as up as high as a dollar thirty-three. So imagine in 1971, if you would tell a producer that corn prices in 1974 would be $3 a bushel. But wait, there's more. Two other times, corn prices would cross the $3. These are market year average prices. This is kind of the farm average price across all producers in the U.S. receiving that price. So three times within a decade, we would see $3 corn in an era where we were pretty locked in at the low side of a dollar. You could begin to imagine the enthusiasm and the heuristic or the rule of thumb that $3 corn would have represented for those producers. It would have felt like $3 corn is a really good time. And in fact, in the early 1970s, it was. We had really strong profitability at the beginning of 1974. But what happened throughout the 70s and in the early 80s is inflation. Inflation in terms of higher cost of production. So there was less profit in that $3 per bushel corn that we were selling, but also we needed more dollars of profit to meet our family living expenses. And so there was inflation going on with the profit. So we were compressing the margins through inflation and we also needed to inflate. We had inflation eroding at those margins, two ways that that was impacting that. And what we saw here is the purchasing power, so the real value of that $3 corn eroded over the decade. So what we've done in the article is we took that corn price throughout the 1970s and early 80s, and we said, what's the real value of those? What's the inflation-adjusted value? And so in 1974, that corn that was nominally $3 a bushel, if we put those in 1983, it was about $6 corn. And then in 1980, when we saw commodity prices peak again, it was almost $4. And then, of course, by 1983, we had about $3.40 per bushel corn, also inflation-adjusted price. So $3 corn, within a decade, lost about half of its purchasing power. And one of the things we wanted to, to frame here is if we didn't update our thinking, we might be out using that rule of thumb or that heuristic to make decisions. Like, oh, my gosh, I have $3 corn again this is a really good time in U.S. agriculture. I need to go out and do something. I need to make investments. I need to expand my operation. I need to fill in the blank. But we need to step back and recognize, you know, 
those rules of thumb can get us into a little bit of trouble if we don't fully think about how it impacts our cost structure and also works its way through our profitability. So where's the deja vu part? I've been hearing folks talking about six and seven dollar corn again, and a lot of enthusiasm has been returning. And there's a couple angles to this I want to mention. First off is, you know, six and seven dollar corn today is, is probably not as lucrative as six and seven dollar corn was back in, in 2011, 2012. We have a higher cost structure. We need more dollars of profit to buy an acre of farmland or to buy a new tractor or to satisfy our family living. So that inflation story is there again, maybe not to the same degree, maybe not as aggressive, but keeping in mind that a decade of time, no matter how rampant inflation is in the, you know, I guess not just say no matter how rampant, a decade of time uh, will erode the purchasing power of corn at whatever price, even if inflation is pretty low. And we've had modest inflation, but it's still, you know, chipping away. So when we look at annual corn prices, we saw we got almost the $7 a bushel in 2012, and we got almost the $6 here in 2021. If we look at the real value, that's almost like $8 corn. So what nominally was seven in today's terms would be closer to eight. And so we're still quite a ways away from those inflation adjusted highs. Now, similar idea, but very different implications. I've been hearing a lot of folks saying, well, 2012 corn prices are really equal to something like $8 a bushel here in 2021 terms. So the market's going to have to get a lot higher to really ration demand here. We need to have see even higher prices if we're going to ration demand. And I just want to encourage you to pump the brakes a little bit on that logic. There's nothing wrong with the math. The math is true. But keep in mind that adjusting for inflation is a way for us to pro- provide context. It shouldn't be used as a, a prediction mechanism. The markets aren't out there trying to figure out how much corn we need to ration by looking at you know, inflation-adjusted prices in the past. We need to just be cautious. And I think one of the points that I added at the end of this article was really valuable. And it, it's tempting to focus on high nominal prices when we're frustrated about the price of things that we're paying, like gasoline. But then we want to use inflation-adjusted prices to get optimistic about how high the price of the products we sell might go. And I just think a little bit about how the use of real or nominal values might you know, impact our conclusion. And we, in both cases, we probably need to be using both, but we need to kind of be careful that we don't let one of those sets of those narratives run away with us a little bit. So Again, I encourage you to take a look at those charts, really dive into the article. There's a lot of meat there. I spent more time talking about this than I planned on, but just sort of thinking about how we use those heuristics, like $3 corn in the 70s or 6 to $7 corn today, but also thinking about how we might use inflation to impact our thinking one way or the other. The next issue here that I wanted to mention today is one that, you know, kind of might come out of left field. It's talking about farmland taxes and the idea of estate taxes and capital gains and stepped up basis. And the reason why we're talking about this is on June the 1st, the Ag Forecast Network question closed. And that question opened uh, at the end of April of 2021. So it was open a little more than 13 months. And the question was, what's the probability of the president signing legislation into law that changes the treatment of stepped up basis 
and reduces the federal state tax exemption level on or before June 1st, 2022. So we have a resolution to a question that you know no one's really talking about today, but let's roll the clock back. Let's go back 12 you know, really eight to 14 months ago, this was a huge issue. Why was this a huge issue? Well, we wrote several articles about that. And it's really probably valuable and worth your time to go read those again and kind of get a refresher where the conversation was just uh, not that long ago. So last spring, the White House and DC was sizing up the potential of a $2.7 billion infrastructure bill. And to help offset that price tag, there were two primary plans, there are a lot of ideas, but two primary plans, one was STEP, S-T-E-P, and the other one was for the 99.5% Act. And those both changed one element of the treatment of capital gains and inheritance. And so there were lots of levers here. There were stepped up bases, there were estate taxes, there were unrealized capital gains, and there's the actual tax rate. As we wrote about last fall, and you can reread that memo, There's a lot of different levers. They all have different implications, but this whole conversation kind of got wrapped up into one. In our reading of it, there were some issues like changing when capital gains were recognized, maybe at death or on an annual basis, had much larger implications than, say, changing stepped-up basis or changing the tax rate for capital gains or changing the tax rate for estate taxes. Now, this is not to argue that one of them is good and one of them is bad. This is just to point out that some of these have way more, changing some of these would have way more implications than others. And just, you know, realizing that that conversation kind of got a lot of chaos. All these things were thrown in together when in reality, there's a lot of nuances and details. Now, of course, in November, the infrastructure bill got passed. It was much smaller. $1.2 billion was passed, but there were no changes in that state tax or in those capital gains. And so that kind of, we passed the bill, but we didn't necessarily pass the cost savings side of that equation. So, you know, part of the always learning is stepping back and say, you know, Hey, what was my forecast look like when I, this question first came out, what was my thinking? How did this play out in the subsequent months? And you, know, you can see the consensus bounced around a little bit. Some of that was because of user forecasts going stale. But in general, last summer, it was like a 50-50 chance of this playing out. Of course, it didn't play out. And when can we update our thinking? When can we update our expectations? And so this, I think, is a good example of sort of why the, the Ag Forecast Network tool is valuable. Is sometimes it helps us stay laser focused and helps us not miss inflection points and helps us, you know, be ahead of the curve for changes that that happen. And sometimes it also helps us recognize that when talked about changes, you know, don't happen, when those things kind of drift away and reminds us of, you know, how these things come and go. So maybe, hopefully, if this conversation comes back up, we can be good students. We can remember some of the lessons we learned this time around, around the, the details around, you know, tax policy and how this all plays out, but also remember how this played out and how the narrative has completely changed. It's kind of hard to believe that the conversation is quite different today than where we were just a year ago. Inflation wasn't nearly as big of a concern a year ago as it is today. They were able to pass that bill, a much smaller bill than what it was initially proposed, You know, more than a 50% reduction. So things change and it's important to recognize that. So those are the two big ideas I had there. Of course, 
I think we talked about this in a previous recording, but I want to remind folks, one of the more interesting tax nuance stories that I, I find very, very interesting, and you could go back and read that, what we're thinking about memo from last fall for more of the details, but George Steinbrenner, sort of the famous former owner of the New York Yankees, passed away in 2010. And 2010 was a unique year because there were no estate taxes that year. And so that benefited his heirs and they dodged something like 500 to $600 million in estate taxes. And that is often cited as part of the problem that needs to get fixed or part of the loophole. But one of the lessons here is that there are trade-offs oftentimes uh, in, in this tax situation. In a lot of ways, stepped up basis and inheritance tax, those things kind of fit together for a reason or those things were put together with intentions years and years ago, even though we might not recognize those reasons today. So while George Steinbrenner passing away in 2010 meant that his heirs, you know, did not face about a half a billion dollars worth of estate taxes they would have had any year before or any year after, they missed that. But they also missed the benefit of stepped up bases. If you look in the data, you know, he bought the Yankees for around $10 million back in the 1970s. It was worth about a billion dollars when he passed away. It's worth about $6 billion today. So the family missed out on stepped up basis, which means if they ever go to sell the Yankees, they're going to have this very large exposure to capital gains tax. And so that last part of the story, that capital gains exposure often gets missed when people talk about the estate taxes that they missed out on. So there were trade-offs there in that story. And so in a lot of times with taxes, uh, there are trade-offs. So that's just a little random sports slash tax story that maybe it was more details that you care to dive into, but that's where that's at. So I'm recording this on Thursday, June the 9th. On June the 10th, USDA is going to come out with its WASDE report. We'll see how that plays out. And of course, we're working our way towards this June acreage report that comes out at the end of the month. So update your forecast questions. Stay tuned. We'll have lots of new articles and a few new questions coming out soon. We're going to resolve questions as well. That's all I have for you for this week. In the meantime, stay curious. 